Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's countdown time for Radiothon. One week to go for the Tuesday Huntime Radiothon program. Lots of money to raise and I hope the regular listeners to this program are willing and able to contribute to the wonderful radio station that we have as 3CR. Even though we're mostly volunteers at the station, we still need a lot of money to keep this station on air 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. So I'm depending on you, the listener, to play your part. But for today, we travel back to 1948 Palestine and hear the story of a family ethnically cleansed from their village, which was later destroyed, speaking with the grandson, Amar Abu Shammai. Then to the mainstream media and the continuing push for war with China. No such push for peace. With President of MAPW, Dr Sue Wareham, US anti-war activist Anne Wright and others urging their president to negotiate a settlement for the war in Ukraine. Gene Ethics with Bob Phelps, the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network, and Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, looking into what pearls and irritations is achieving as an online journal. But first, let's hear from Mr Kevin Healy. And don't forget, any time in the next week, you can ring the station on 94198377 and pledge your support. A week, Jane, listener, when caring employers expressed deep concern after the fair work True Blue Aussie No Longer Work Choices Just Looks Like It con mission awarded the lazy, avaricious, lowest of the low paid a 5.75% increase to their lowest of pay. Heeding the caring employers' concerned timely warnings, pleased that allowing workers pay to maintain their standard of living would destroy their standard of living and the standard of living of all of us. Commissioner Hatchet, the workers saying this was all the economy could bear, which might explain why, despite their stated concern, caring employers look very pleased with themselves. The decision showing fairy tales are fairy tales, like the tortoise beating the hare, when in real life the runaway inflation hare has streaked away from the struggling, toiling tortoise. Although the fairy tale tortoise had one advantage over the lowest of low paid, it had its home stuck on its back rather than having less buying power stuck on their backs. We asked the wisest and most knowledgeable of the caring employers, our old mate through Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group, Supremo Innes, will cost the workers his expert opinion. This will cost jobs and will definitely flame inflation. Uh, so workers will fall even further behind Innes. It's their own fault for being so greedy and selfish. But Innes noticed the filthiest rich or the filthy rich have doubled their wealth over the past two years. Which shows the value of hard work. The lowest of low pay should learn from them. No, we would have liked an increase somewhere south of 5.75%. How much south, Innes? Well, roughly 5.75%. And yet, ignoring this expert knowledge that out-of-control fast food and retail evil union boss Josh Cullinan attacked the decision as inadequate, pushing workers further behind. Where, where's he coming from? 
So aren't we lucky we have experts who understand the intricacies of the greatest little economic order of them all to provide the solutions we ignoramuses? Well, I won't assume you, listener, but ignoramus, workers and evil unionists, and yes, me, to provide the solutions we need, like reserve losses, bank supremo, and lay the workers low, who have solved all the problems. Workers must be out of work, and those not out of work must take a pay cut, and then inflation will be solved. But you've been increasing interest rates month after month and inflation keeps going up. That's because not enough workers are unemployed and and those employed earn too much. You haven't thought caring employers and the caring business class putting up their prices might have a bit to do with it, Ian? No, no, because that is a typical fallacious argument of those who have no comprehension of economic principles. Selfish, overpaid workers who refuse to be unemployed and the evil union officials who, with a few welcome exceptions, refuse to work with caring employers for the common good. If inflation keeps soaring and wages remain depressed, how are wages causing inflation, Ian? Clearly, if the price of labour increases, that is inflation. But if they don't increase, workers keep falling further behind. And if they do, inflation will be even higher. Selfish workers can't have it both ways. Uh, By the way, Ian, given banks are a licence to print money, a private mint, how come the Reserve Losses Bank doesn't make a profit? Yeah, it's fair to say we have had a run of bad luck. But in his relentless desire to make life better for all of us, Ian has solved the housing crisis. All lived together, problem solved, one big national home. No, that's silly, but I've heard you've got five bedrooms, Ian. How many in housing crisis can you accommodate? None. None of my friends are in housing crisis. But good news. The week that was has come up with an even better contribution based on Ian's invaluable solution. See, there's halls and community spaces all over our municipalities and the unemployed needed for a healthy economy and low-paid workers needed for a healthy economy who can't afford the inflationary rents, rents let alone inflationary house prices and mortgagees who can't meet the ever-increasing interest rates which have worked such a treat in addressing inflation and also end up on the street, then let's bring back the poorhouse. Convert all those halls, community centres, I'd even suggest parks and gutters, except these people should be kept out of sight of couth, civilised people like Ian. Convert them into huge poorhouses and give each person a sleeping bag to throw on the floor at a most reasonable rental cost. And if they can't afford that, well, get a job, I say. Although, of course, many of them have got a job. Their wages are the issue causing all these problems. So, don't get a job, I say. Oh, oh, it's so complicated. Anyway, adopt this extension of Ian's great idea, and that's the last we'll hear of a housing crisis. Yet, there's speculation the government won't reappoint Ian in September, but the Caring Business Class Party has wished him well and said they hope he is reappointed, because like us, listener, they know what a success story he has been. Those hoping the state socialists could take decisive steps to address the housing crisis can take solace from the revelation this week that more than half the socialist MPs, including lots of ministers, own heaps of investment properties. 
Most state Labour MPs are property barons, the True Blue Aussie Cup must review headlined. That must explain all they're doing to make life easier for renters, real socialist values. One voice on The Voice this week, Deputy Caring Business Class Party Supremo Susan Lees and Dregs, told Parliament she will vote no with a heavy heart. Well, Susan, we can think of one way you can avoid a heavy heart. But at the end of Reconciliation Week, we must thank Constable Duffer, Susan and the team for spending the week showing us why we need a Reconciliation Week. That bastion of democracy and fair play, the AFL, decreed the accused in the so-called racism scandal had no case to answer, and therefore it would impose penalties on Hawthorne. Uh, let's check that. They did nothing wrong, therefore we'll have to penalise them. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what is your verdict? Uh, uh, not guilty, Your Honour. Accused, please stand. The jury has found you not guilty. Ten years hard labour. Although not sure the terrenalliest non-people involved in the political football issue would consider there was no case to answer. On cases to answer, spare a thought for poor and maybe about to get much poorer depending on where the costs end up, Ben Robbers smite them, whom his honour concluded just may have been involved in a bit of all that, plus domestic violence. I got the feeling halfway through the protracted defamation trial as the evidence mounted, Ben just may have been regretting suing the media in the first place. But in the, did I hear that correctly, could you repeat that department, Troubler was his number one trained killer, Angus Dumbbell, warned our father country, the US of the UN of the US of the world, could refuse to cooperate with Troubler was he on trained killing because of war crimes and abuses of human rights. <laughs> Let's repeat that. The US of abhors war crimes and abuses of human rights. The US of. Then why the hell is Julian Assange rotting in an isolation cell in London? With similar logic, the tax department said it could not report to government ministers what it knew for years about PwC for pricks with confidentiality, making trillions by breaching confidentiality because the department was bound by, wait for it, by confidentiality. Satire can't compete. Those Lord Rupert a whopping ads for his Troubler Aussie trade-in with the big red Troubler Aussie up the top slogans for the informed reader, with which we have to agree because only the informed reader would be guaranteed to know it's all total crap. In the Does It Our Heart Bleed for the Department, private schools are complaining that having to pay tax would force them to charge parents even more. Oh dear, what more can we say? Doesn't our heart bleed for them? And for Ben. So finally, if ever, if every troubler was, he popped a dollar into the help killer war criminal Ben appeal, it would almost pay for his legal bill. Oh no, no, let's say how we feel. Couldn't happen to a nicer, could it? Good afternoon. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits. 
Your support during Radiothon keeps the station radical and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference. And all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2023. On May 15, Palestinians around the world marked the 75th anniversary of Nakba. Arabic Fall Catastrophe, where over 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from their homes and 530 villages destroyed. But for Amar Abu Shamle, there is a personal connection because one of those destroyed villages was the home of his grandfather. Amar is a Palestinian Australian, a software engineer living in Western Australia, founding president of the Palestinian Cultural Society of the University of Western Australia and an intern at Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. My first question to him was, what was the name of that village and the significance of the name? The name of the the village my grandfather was born in was Zakaria. The significance of the name is it was actually named in in honour of a well-known prophet called Zachariah, who's, who's venerated in, in all of the Abrahamic religions, and in Islam, Christianity, and in Judaism, because believed that he was buried near that village or, or within the village itself. That's the significance of the name. What is your grandfather's name, and what has he told you about his life and his family life prior to 1948? My grandfather's name is Ali, and he... But to be honest, I, I've never gotten a chance to really sit down with him and speak with him a lot about his own story before 1948. I've heard a decent amount about his story during 1948 and, and bits of his story afterwards. But because we're separated by quite a lot of distance, I've never actually had the chance to sit down with him and, and hear a lot really about the village itself, what it was like, what his childhood there was like. Well, a little bit that you do know. Can you talk about that? I do know a little bit about some of his upbringing. I know that his, like his family was reasonably well known within the village. He grew up in the village as a youngster, but then during his schooling years, he actually studied in, in one of the major cities. It wasn't in Zakaria. He actually studied. It might have been in, in Yaffa, but I'm not actually 100% sure. And then returned to Zakaria along with a number of other people in the village who also studied elsewhere because it was quite a small small rural village. Uh, they returned around when they finished their studies, maybe in their late teens, approaching their 20s, and that was just as things were kicking into 1948, and it wasn't very long then before they were just dispossessed from, from the village. So it was mainly a farming, a rural community? Yeah, it was a very rural community and, and quite a small village just, you know, the census data shows just over maybe a thousand Palestinians that were living there in 1948 or just before 1948. And what do you know of what happened when the Zionist militias arrived? I do know a bit about this. What I heard from him is that he and his family were actually woken up around midnight by an Egyptian officer 
who warned them that Zionist militia, they had basically torn through the rest of what was called the Southern Jerusalem Corridor, uh, and they had depopulated every Palestinian village they'd passed. And Zachariah was the last village at that stage that was left. So they were warned, the militia's coming, you have to leave, like you have to flee. And so he and his family, in the, it was in the middle of the night, like they got up, they put together what they could at midnight, and they just fled. Originally, initially, they fled to some hills nearby where there was a well, and over time, more and more villagers started to flee. And then he and his family, they went to another village near Lot where they had some family, and they stayed with them for a short time. Like, he remembers that they, they, quite, they believed quite fervently no, this is temporary. We'll we'll be going back to our home soon. But as time actually passed, they realized it definitely wasn't temporary. Something quite serious had happened. Uh, and so my grandfather went to Hebron, which is one of the big Palestinian population centers, to see if he could find a place for his family to rent. But the city was completely overwhelmed with so many other Palestinian refugees that had fled all the other villages that had been expelled, there was literally no space left. He couldn't find a single place to rent. And so they made a much longer trip to Jericho and they found a place there to rent where they where they had some refuge for some time. Eventually his story goes on, but that was his story during 1948. I know very few villages did stay in Azakaria. The conditions... From what, what I could find, what I read was that the conditions worsened quite drastically. Eventually, the militia did enter, and anyone who had remained was just forcibly expelled. Uh, the decision was made, I think, in 1950 by Ben-Gurion to expel all the Palestinian villages left in Azakaria and a number of other villages because they decided there were some good homes there. They could be used for some settlers who had arrived. And so everyone who was left in the village by 1950 was just forcibly expelled. Then new Jewish settlers who had arrived actually just occupied the, the very homes that still stood in the village. The people who were forced out took their front door key with them, believing that they'd be able to go back in a very short time. Why would they have thought that? For a lot of people, the, the idea of being expelled from your home is is massively confronting. Like if someone came into into my house now and said, "You have to flee. You need to run. You know, there's people are coming," uh, and it was the middle of the night, I wouldn't leave believing, "Oh, that's it. I've I've lost my home forever." Like you'd you'd hang on to the belief, especially it was a different time back then. Um, you didn't have the sort of rapid circulation of news you might have now. You don't have the full picture of the situation to know just how grave what's happening actually is. You know, I'd never walk out of my front door, the home that I've been living in for as long as I can remember since I was a young child, thinking, this is it, I'm never going to see this house again. So a lot of people took their keys. For a lot of people, for everyone now, those keys are symbolic, but at the time, that they weren't symbolic. They took their keys genuinely believing we're coming back to our houses. This is just temporary. This It's a conflict that will boil over and we'll come back to our houses in a few days or a few weeks. 
but no one would have been leaving believing this is it. I'm never going to see this house again that, that I grew up in as a child. And, of course, those houses were eventually demolished. Yes. When did that happen? It happened in the in the 1960s, um, at least for Zachariah, but I think for the majority of Palestinian villages. In the 1960s, there was a national effort all across Israel, Palestine, to demolish any Palestinian villages that had been depopulated during 48. And it was quite a conscious effort to really wipe out as many traces as they could of the Palestinian life on the land and history and heritage on the land. And so Zachariah as well, during that period of time, almost every building in the village had been destroyed. And then upon the ruins of the village, they would build a, a new a new village that they would uh, give a different bastardized name. They'll take the original name of the village, and they've done this all across the land. They'll take the original name of the village or the city, and they would Hebraize it to, to instill this notion that oh, this is this is a Hebrew village. This land is a land with entrenched Jewish heritage because the names of all the villages and the cities are are Hebrew names. But there have been historians and academics. Uh, I remember going to a lecture here in Melbourne where the person explained, he did all the research and actually pinpointed where every village was, every street was, where everyone's house was, and showed how that the Jewish government had tried to obliterate the Palestinian land. Yeah, there's been quite a lot of work done in that space. I know of at least one book by a historian of that nature. I think it's called Noor Masalha, and the book's called Palestine, A 1,000-Year History. And that's a very similar project. It's, it's a book that covers the history of Palestine, but really with that focus of talking about the parts of the history that you know, the Israeli government has attempted to eradicate. I'll find the exact name of the book, just so I don't get it wrong. Sorry, it's Palestine, A 4,000-Year History, and it's exactly like what you said. They traced through so many villages and talk about what their original names were and how the names changed when that program happened. You know, there's been more, I suppose, more community-led, one of which I know is called Palestine Remembered, where they've done the same thing. They've charted all of the villages that were demolished in, in 1948 Oh, they were depopulated in 48 and then later demolished a few decades later. They've charted them all across the map with their original names. They've found people like my grandfather, for example, who lived in those villages, who they've interviewed, and, and they've chronicled all that history in archives online. So there are, there's a lot of effort around preserving that history and that heritage. Has your grandfather ever been back to that position? where his family home was? He tried to go back about 20 years ago. I caught up with him again back in, in March when I went to Jordan and, and when I saw Palestine for the first time. And I did ask him that question if he'd ever gone back. He said he tried about 20 years ago, but he couldn't get into the village. Him and a few other people he knew who were also from Zachariah, they all went back to what's now a, an Israeli moshav that's been built in its place. 
but they got rejected flat out by the people who lived there who kind of screamed insults at them. He said they screamed things like, you know, you don't have any land here, you don't belong here. But as far as I understand, that's the only time he's tried to go back. Your grandfather, as you said, is still alive. Where is he living now? And were his family dispersed outside of Palestine? To Because I know some families were forced into Iraq, into Syria, into Lebanon. What happened to his immediate family? Himself and his immediate family, they had sought refuge within within the West Bank, so within um, Jericho, which is a city I mentioned earlier. You know, that when you look at the 750,000 or 800,000 Palestinians that were dispossessed in 48, like you said, a, a number of different outcomes came about. So one big group of them ended up in Gaza where they're still trapped. Them and, and the generations that followed them are still trapped in Gaza. Roughly 2 million people living in Gaza now, 1.7 million of them are people who were uprooted during 1948. They're not originally from there. A number of them ended up being dispersed to different countries, a number of them forcibly, like they were sent there by the Zionist militia who then shot in the air to, to force them to cross the border. And a number of them ended up within the West Bank, so within the territory that's now, it's not part of the Israeli map, but it's completely under their control and, and occupation. And that was what happened to my grandfather. His own story, or the bits that I know of it, were that he he eventually travelled to Syria to study at university there. He studied various forms of law, eventually became a judge, and was approached by Kuwait to help them set up bits of their judicial system. This would have been decades later. So he worked in Kuwait then for a long time. That's where my mother Oh, uh, not born. She was born in Palestine, but that's where my mother grew up. She was born in Palestine and then left when she was one. Grew up in Kuwait along with the rest of her family. And then he eventually moved to Jordan, to Amman. And that's where he's, he's living now. That's where he's been living since. And your mother came to Australia with her family? Yes. My mother grew up in Kuwait. My dad, he was born in Kuwait and grew up there. And his parents, their original village is within the West Bank, so they weren't dispossessed during 1948, but they were dispossessed just prior to 67. Like my dad's parents, they had moved to Kuwait to work there. Um, they, they, could, they struggled to find work within the West Bank. And while 67 happened... Because they were in Kuwait and they weren't physically in Palestine, they completely lost their homes there. Like they lost their, their, anyone who wasn't in Palestine when the 67 war broke out, they were forbidden to return. And so that was what happened to my grandparents on my dad's side. And so he was born and, and grew up in Kuwait. Him and my mother got married there. And then in the 90s, in the early 90s, when the Gulf War broke out, they were forced to flee Kuwait. So they waited as long as they could. When it was clear that there's going to be a big war here, they made the journey to the border and then crossed over into Jordan. They stayed there for about a year and then they migrated here to Australia. You mentioned there that you went to Palestine in March. Had you wanted to go before that? I had, 
as a child, like when I was younger, I, I had mixed feelings. I wanted to go, but I, I didn't have a complete understanding of what the situation was in, in all the different parts of Palestine. And there was some element of fear. I, I think it was the same for my parents as well. But certainly over the last few years, I've had an increasingly strong desire to go. I'd say what's been blocking it since 2020 onwards was primarily COVID, um, especially because I live in in Western Australia. There was a long period of a few years where it, it was really tough to get out or get in. But once that passed, yeah, it was it was quite a high priority for myself and for my family to go back. How many of you went? My entire immediate family. So myself, my three siblings, and both of my parents, we all went. No problems to get visas? The visas, not so much. It's At least if you've got an Australian passport, and it's the same for a lot of other Western passports, you don't need to apply to the embassy in Tel Aviv to get a visa in advance. So you would enter Jordan by the visa as you're entering Jordan, and then you'd head to the border between Jordan and, and Israel, and then that's where you'd get given a temporary visa. They generally don't reject a lot of people anymore unless you've been very, very, very politically active and you're quite a well-known figure, in which case people do get rejected outright. But they just give you a lot of discomfort at the border, uh, as much as they can. Like They'll try and make you feel quite intimidated, quite uncomfortable as you're going through that process. And so we did go through that. Everyone does. It's just a part of, of entering Palestine, especially for Palestinians. What were your first feelings when you saw Palestine for the first time? For me personally, I, I think the first feeling was just awe and a bit of, uh, it's almost strange to say because it is my first time being there, but some sort of sense of nostalgia, of belonging. You just look around and you see the land that, I don't know how to describe it, but it's quite an intense feeling of, you know, this is the land that my grandparents are from, that all of my heritage is from. Yeah, it is, there's a lot of awe, there's a lot of belonging, but eventually then there's, there's a bit of sadness, especially as you start to see a lot of the massive settlement blocks, you get that sense of dispossession as well. So it's quite a, a variety of mixed feelings. You finally met your grandfather? My grandfather, I'd, because he lives in Amman, I'd, I'd met him. Yeah, like I've known him since I was a child and the same for all of my grandparents. But there were distant relatives that I'd only ever heard about. Um, so my great uncle, my great aunt, some of my father's cousins that I'd never met before. And I did get to meet them for the first time when I went to Palestine. How did they describe their lives to you? For me, that was the most interesting part of the trip. And the saddest, but also the most important part of the trip, they all had different colours of experiences, depending on on which one you ask. So my father's cousin, for example, he lives in in Yabat, which is the village that that both of my father's parents came from. Um, And we met him and and he hosted us, and it was actually extremely kind, extremely hospitable. But he described parts of his life, and he kind of took us out to his veranda and showed us the big 
big block of land that sat between him and, and a settlement village on an opposing hill, and that we could actually see it quite visibly. So he spoke about how his father had owned about 27 dunams of land within that, that little valley, but he had been completely stripped of his right to actually claim that inheritance. Basically, the, the settlers that lived in that village, and I can find the name of the village, it was called it was called Mevo Dotan. Those settlers actually just stole his land. They barred his access to it, and they very frequently barred his access to his olive tree on the land during harvest season. Because if you don't harvest the olives at the right season, then, then they become worthless. And they often did that with the support and the cooperation of the IDF as well. So that was one experience. Another experience, which is my great-aunt who lives in, in Janin, she told us because they live very close to the refugee camp, which is one of the spots that Israel really sees as a hot spot of resistance, um, and they often, especially lately this year, they often attack, um, like invade that refugee camp and, and attack indiscriminately. She said that when that happens, they actually hear it. Like it's, it's extremely audible. They can almost feel the impact on the ground when rockets are fired because they're so close to the refugee camp. But it's just something, and she stressed this so many times, it's just a part of their life. It's something they've gotten used to. It's like they don't even feel the fear of it anymore because it's just, it's a part of what's normal for them. It's what they've grown up with. My great uncle, who lives in a village called Arabe, so these are all very close to each other. You know, Arabe, yeah, they're villages that are 15, 20 minutes away from, from Janine. His children, who are actually around my age, they spoke about their experiences with the checkpoints on a daily basis. They'll be traveling to work. There might be a, a long line outside the checkpoint and then you're going to be two hours late to work. Or a checkpoint's closed, you have to find a different path and that, and that delays you a few hours. But it's, it's just a normal part of their lives, like to the extent that people would show up to work 10 a.m., 11 a.m. sometimes and, and no one asks, everyone just understands that it, it was checkpoints. It's just something they've adapted to because they've had to. You know, you say they're adapted to it, but surely the, the younger generation of some of them have said, I can't cope with it anymore, enough's enough, I'm going to fight back? I think so. I think we, we see that in the news. It's, people will resist in, in different ways. In the case of the younger generations that I met from my family, I mean, they haven't made the decision that they're going to fight back in a sort of physical way. But for them, the, their form of resistance is they have no intention of leaving. They've got no desire to leave Palestine. For them, Palestine is their home. And, and along with all of those difficulties they have to deal with under occupation, they've decided that they'll confront them. But they're not going to leave. They're not going to run away. They're not going to be forced out by the discomfort. And other people, for them, their form of resistance, like you said, is, is fighting back. Uh, I think we see that a lot, particularly in Janin, especially in, in the refugee camp where the people there have have really lost quite a lot since 1948, and in Nablus as well. 
Uh, and that's why often in the news when we see attacks by the IDF within the West Bank, it's typically in in one of those two places. Uh, of course, they attacked everywhere, but Janine and Nablus are particular hotspots. And it's because they're particular hotspots of of that form and that strength of resistance that you spoke about. Were there places you wanted to go but were stopped? Yes. So Nablus was actually one place we couldn't visit. We had originally planned to visit Nablus, and, and it was on our itinerary. So we worked with a, like an agency that's based in Bethlehem, and they were, they were amazing to work with, and they're Palestinian. Like they're, they're quite passionate about what we were trying to do. We had originally planned for Nablus, and then just before we left, maybe a week or two weeks before we left, there was a massive attack on the old city in Nablus, killed about 11 people. And so when that happened, the agency that we were working with, they said, we just can't take you to Nablus. It's too dangerous. The old city is too dangerous to be in. Like, they refused to take us. Um, they just said, we can't send you or our driver to Nablus because we're responsible. Yeah, it, we, we couldn't visit Nablus. We couldn't even really go near Nablus the, the whole time that we were there. Did you visit Jerusalem? We did visit Jerusalem. We stayed in, in a hotel in Jerusalem for four nights. So we didn't spend the full four days within Jerusalem itself, but we did visit Jerusalem, and, and we we spent at least two days exploring the old city there. I'm just wondering who else was on the tour. Was it an international tour or just from Australia? It wasn't so much a tour. It was We worked with this agency specifically for a trip for ourselves, uh, and we had a private driver with, with a small minivan, so it was, just, it was just my family, sort of a private trip that we organised with an agency. Your siblings, how old are they? They're all around my age, so we're all mid to, to late 20s. We range from 25 to about 29 at the moment, um, so we're all quite close in age. And what was their experience that they've shared with you now you're back home? Yeah, uh, their their experience, I'd say very similar to mine. It, everyone has their own experience travelling Palestine, but I think because we all moved and, and travelled together, we all had a, a similar experience. How it feels for each person is different. So for me personally, I uh, I was never intimidated by anything that we were going through. There were things that upset me or that maybe confronted me, but I was never scared. And that's the sort of attitude I've adopted over the last few years. So whereas for my siblings, I think maybe for some of them, it, it could have been a bit different. You know, they, they could have been at certain times during the trip more genuinely fearful for, for themselves and their welfare, which is, is completely justified. In that way, I think it's it's different for everyone, but you know, and only they can talk to their feelings. But we all had we all had a very, very eye-opening experience there. For all of us, it was our first time visiting Palestine. Even though you say you weren't fearful, there must have been times when it was uncomfortable. Yes, definitely. Uh, I'd say the most uncomfortable parts of the trip was always travelling through a checkpoint. They're, they're uncomfortable in in different ways, depending on the checkpoint and, and just the whims of the soldiers manning it. But travelling through the checkpoints for me was always 
a fairly confronting experience. You're suddenly surrounded by soldiers and they sort of just have the whim to do whatever they want. So at times they would be lined up. When we were leaving Bethlehem, we, we were caught in quite a long line of cars that, that had to travel through this checkpoint uh, and it delayed us probably about an hour and a half and you'd see every car pass through, the doors open, the boots open, soldiers inspect the car and then wave the person through. Uh, and then it came our turn and again, they inspect your passport, they inspect your visa and then sometimes they'll let you through just like that. Other times, and, and this happened to us um, as we were entering Yaffa, they waved us to one side and actually just kept us there for upwards of 15 to 20 minutes as we saw car after car after car to, to our left just pass right through. And that was obviously because they were non-Palestinian or, or Jewish uh, Israeli inhabitants. I think there's, there's a strong sense of powerlessness that's associated with all of it. There's, there's nothing you can really do about it. There's no agency you have to respond. You're, you're just sort of at the mercy of their whims. It's because it's a completely lawless presence to begin with. It's, it's all an occupation. But, yeah, the, the checkpoints, I always felt my heart beating a little faster as we were approaching a checkpoint. When we went to leave Janine, the checkpoint that guards the entry and exit was just completely closed. Our driver negotiated with a soldier over telecom for a few minutes and then just had to turn around to us told, checkpoint's closed. Uh, I don't care who you're carrying. It's not my problem. Find a different path. And so that then meant we had to find a much, much longer path on, on country roads to get onto the highway. Adds an hour and a half, two hours to your trip. So for me, that was always, it was always quite a confronting experience, but it's quite sad to think back that that's, for Palestinians who live there, that's, it's just a part of their day. I'll finish with a quote of yours. Palestine has retained its untarnished beauty. Can you elaborate? Yeah, I, I definitely can. It was, uh, like I said earlier, when, when I entered Palestine, the first thing I really felt was, was awe. Um, looking at the land, and this was constantly the case throughout the trip, it, there's really quite a beauty to the land. There's so much greenery, and there's a beauty to the people as well. And what I was really surprised by leaving was how much the people have not allowed themselves to be disgraced by the occupation, um, like how, how much they've really retained their, their spirits of hospitality and generosity and how much the land itself as well has has endured. Um, you look over the land and, and it's, it's really quite gorgeous. It's scenic almost all the time. And the people themselves are so warm. I just found it surprising that they've they've managed to really retain that and, and not lose any of it despite how long they've been suffering on, under an occupation for almost 75 years now. Thank you for sharing that with us. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. One more story from the Nakba 75 years ago with Amar Abu Shamle. The 
we're not meant to have anything nuclear in our country. It's really important and urgent that, that Australia gets serious about nuclear disarmament. Well, nobody anywhere on the planet has figured out how to deal with highly radioactive waste. Most of those who've managed nuclear weapons consider this to be the most dangerous time that we've ever lived in, with the danger of nuclear war at unprecedented levels. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2023. While certain politicians and military leaders are pumping for conflict with China, which would be catastrophic for all concerned, it would appear that the mainstream media, through publications and the people who are interviewed and quoted as experts, are perpetuating dangerous myths, which only increases the threat of war in the near future. I spoke with Dr Sue Wareham, recently retired Canberra GP, President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Secretary of Australians for War Powers Reform and a past board member of ICANN. Sue, it is increasingly odd for the sections of the media in a sense, preparing their readers for war with China. But what to me appears to be different is the particular media outlets who are at the forefront. We might have expected the Murdoch media, but this year we've had the Red Alert with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, and in recent days a 15-page supplement in the Canberra Times, which you label as a most shameful collection of warmongering articles and images. Do you see a change in media reporting and what do you put it down to? It's hard to be certain about that, but what's in it for them? I guess the, the obvious answer is that there's money in so-called defence advertising. In relation to the most recent example, which was the Canberra Times had a defence supplement, and I should say that from time to time over quite a long period of time they do have a defence supplement so this is not entirely new but the content was very hawkish towards China of course. The reason for that is that that they want more defence advertising that's probably at least part of it because there's so much money in anything that you can label defence or security these days and the people who make the weapons, weapons manufacturers, they've got heaps of funding to do advertising for their weapon systems and all the rest of it. So it's probably the, the money factor that's at least part of the reason for that. 15 pages is a lot though, isn't it? Yes, I mean for a supplement, I'm not sure how that, how that rates in terms of length, but it was a lot of page on page of and I, I couldn't say it was all warmongering, but it was. It all had a, mostly, not all, there were some exceptions to this, but mostly had a, a very strong militaristic flavour. It was in response to the Defence Strategic Review, so I guess one might expect that. But one might also expect that for an important national newspaper, the Canberra Times, that there would be some better balance either within that supplement or at other times with a a different supplement with different views on how Australia might better be defended 
and should we be putting pouring all our money and putting all our eggs in the basket of or most of our eggs in the basket of military approaches to defence or should we be pouring much, much more into diplomacy? So there are a lot of questions that don't get asked and one starts thinking about, well, what are we going to do to ensure that we're secure in Australia? What are we going to do if we're not going to rely on weaponry and the US alliance to do that? Well, what are the other approaches? And there are lots of answers to that and there are experts on that who really aren't consulted by the mainstream media. So that's that's a problem that we're not getting balance from our mainstream media when we're looking at important issues in relation to Australia's future. Would you be holding your breath if you really expected that that would happen, that there would be a sort of a counter looking at peace? Regardless of whether we had a peace supplement as such in one of the mainstream media and I I think that is achievable and one would certainly like to see it. But just better balance within the media uh, and this goes to issues such as well, who do the journalists consult when they want an opinion on matters related to defence and security and, and the answer is now they're heavily biased towards you know, particular elite sort of voices in the in the official defence and security space. And the problem is that often these elite voices have vested interests behind them, either from the weapons industry or a number of them uh, are associated with institutions that are part-funded by the US State Department, US Defence Department. This is blatant foreign interference. So we're getting foreign interference in what we're told about our defence and security and and yet it's not labelled as such. It's sort of defined out it can't be foreign interference if it comes from the United States or the United Kingdom. So we need much better balance. We need greater diversity of voices, perspectives. We should have more Chinese-Australian voices in this discussion. Now, how are Chinese-Australians managing at the moment with all the warmongering towards China that's going on? We should have voices of civil society, women's groups, peace groups, experts. The discipline of peace research has almost been brought to extinction and yet we absolutely need peace researchers at the moment and we need people skilled in diplomacy and all of these people, former diplomats, and there are many of them around with good, well-founded, strong opinions on the way, on how Australia should be doing things differently, but they're not all that often reported in the mainstream media. We get the same voices saying the same things about needing to spend more on our military and be more assertive. Is there any joy in writing letters to the editor or submitting articles on peace and issues like that or climate change? Uh, I think these are really important things. And, of course, letters to the editor don't, by themselves, don't win campaigns for a better future but they're an important part of it and I think we we shouldn't overlook that the benefits that the benefits that our democracy gives us and we do have the capacity to write and often progressive views will will get reported published in uh, not mainstream media so much but in other other publications, more progressive online publications. So there's definitely a place and 
I think smaller media, whether they're print or more often these days online, play a really, really important role in keeping those who are interested engaged in different perspectives, different facts, different inputs into discussions on whether it's climate or peace or or the links between those things or whatever. So, yeah, there are progressive media and I think we absolutely need to use them uh, to the full. How would you assess the coverage of these issues in the ABC? MAPW Medical Association for Prevention for we've actually been undertaking some research on media generally in relation to peace and security issues and the ABC will be part of that. We'll be publishing that fairly soon. But we do note that the ABC has as part of its charters a need for balance and that doesn't mean that within every article different perspectives need to be presented but it does mean that over time there should be a pretty good balance between different perspectives. So we'll be looking at that and we suspect that the ABC does not fulfil that uh, very well. But we'll, we'll hope to have some more information on that soon. Can I take you back to the Red Alert series? called it one of the most alarming front page stories in the nation's history. How did you assess that series? That would be a pretty fair assessment. It was absolutely disgraceful journalism to have such prominence on such a highly disputed message as to how should we be approaching our relationship with China. It's a huge issue for for Australia. Peter Harcher and his colleague at the Nine Network chose, I think it was five, they called them experts uh, on the issue, handpicked all of a similar sort of mind that we need to be much more assertive and aggressive because we're likely to be at war against China uh, within several years. Now among these so-called experts there actually wasn't much if any expertise on China and one of the key things that we need when we're trying to improve a difficult relationship is that we really really need to have some perspective on how things look from the point of view of our so-called enemy. How do they view the situation and how are they likely to respond to this and that? So that expertise on China, which is what the series was all about, Red Alert Towards China, that expertise actually on China uh, was really not there in the to the extent that it was needed. It was highly alarming. I mean, if you took it at face value, one could despair that there's that there's no hope we're going to be in a catastrophic war against China within, I think it was three years, they said. Uh, it was disgraceful. There was no balance. It was alarmist. Wrong interpretations of, of what's happening. We're rightly pilloried for it by quite, quite a lot of people. But nevertheless, it was there. And a lot of people would have seen the Red Alert series, but not not necessarily seen the follow-up criticism of it. And as you mentioned a moment ago, the impact on Chinese people living in Australia, whether they're long-term residents or more recent students from China, that started with COVID, but it must be getting very frightening for many of those people. Yes, yes, we believe that it is getting very, very unsettling. And yes, perhaps frightening for them. What does their future in Australia hold? What's the future for their 
children here and there are a lot of ethnic Chinese Australians living here so we really need to be respectful of these people and what they are going through at the moment and to do that we need to hear from them we need to know what what are they thinking what are their fears and how can those fears be diminished um, and we shouldn't be casting all Chinese Australians uh, in the putting them all in the box of possible Chinese Communist Party spies which is often the impression that one gets anybody of Chinese Chinese ethnic origin is automatically suspect but this is pretty dangerous territory and we shouldn't be going down that path. Also, Sue, an issue we've discussed many times is the Australian War Memorial and today it follows on from the ruling of a federal court judge in dismissing the defamation case initiated by Australia's most decorated living soldier. The issue is how is the War Memorial going to deal with this? seems that um, for the moment the memorial is not changing its policy of displaying two portraits of Ben Robert Smith. One is a very large attention-grabbing one of him in combat mode and the other is a, is a smaller piece and there are some other pieces from Ben, ben Robert Smith on display. So we understand that the memorial is not currently changing its policy of displaying those things but I, I think perhaps there will be some explanatory notes put beside them. It's a huge challenge for the memorial in the bigger picture because the memorial has been in the habit of not simply commemorating our war dead, which which is its fundamental purpose, but it's been in the habit of really honouring to the extent of glorifying war service itself and the memorial is more or less explicit about this that they want to honour all all ADF personnel, honour what they've done, you know, more or less without sufficient qualification. So it's been and particularly under the when it was under the directorship of Brendan Nelson, the previous director, was overtly explicitly uh, in the practice of defending Ben Robert Smith. So big problems for the memorial here and I think it does bring into question their whole modus operandi at the moment of honouring and glorifying uh, ADF service itself, which in the view of many people is not the role of the memorial. And also the connections with Kerry Stokes, still with the War Memorial, who will in the first instance Kerry Stokes funded his his appeal and Brendan Nelson was one of the major supporters of him, very vocal. Yes, yes, they've both been very strong supporters of Ben Robert Smith. I guess Friday when this judgment came down was not a not a good day for them, but you know what it means for for Stokes, um, that small fry, I think what it means for our national institution. The Australian War Memorial is a really important issue and I think the memorial needs to look at the issue of how they deal with atrocities that have been committed by ADF personnel in the wars in, in which we've been engaged and we should really be dropping this pretense that the ADF always act, act honourably in war because war itself is an, is an environment where atrocities occur. 
it's more or less designed to create the conditions for atrocities. So we really need to drop this, uh, drop the pretense of ADF actions always being honourable. And yes, let's accept that the ADF for the most part act honourably, but we really need to take a more honest look at warfare generally and the conditions that it creates for for atrocities to occur. Well, just finally, Sue, do you believe this judgment last Friday could be a turning point for the memorial? One would like to think that it would make the memorial stop a bit in its tracks in this constant holding up of military service is almost the best thing you can do for your country. Whether it will do that or not, who knows? The decision-making body at the memorial, the council, is very heavily skewed towards those with military service um, and that's a problem in itself. So remains to be seen how much of a turning point this might be. The work of organisations such as yours and others continue? Oh, absolutely, yes, yes. MAPW and other organisations are still trying to get the weapons makers out of the war memorial, in, in particular Lockheed Martin at the moment. We want to ensure that there are no further contracts with Lockheed Martin or any other of the weapons makers. That's an ongoing campaign. And for militarism in society generally, yet there's a huge role for civil society. In fact, as we've seen from from the role that the mainstream media are playing, which is not good in term in in relation to war and peace issues, then civil society and civil society are needed now more than ever. We really need people to get engaged, get active, particularly um, in relation to the AUKUS still, the Australian war of sleepwalking towards a major war with China, the nuclear submarines. All of these issues are not being handled responsibly by government or by our media. So civil society has really got to get active on these right now. Thank you, Sue. Thank you very much, Jan. I've been speaking with Dr. Sue Wareham in Canberra. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2023. To donate, call the station 0394 8377 or donate online, 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned, stay radical. Anti-war and peace activists in the US and elsewhere have been calling for months for a diplomatic settlement for the war in Ukraine to stop the killing. But now US national security experts are joining, calling the war in Ukraine an unmitigated disaster. They were the signatories to an open letter published in the New York Times on the 20th of May. Today I'm speaking with one of the signatories, Anne Wright, a retired US Army colonel and former diplomat. And the war is now in its second year. Can I ask you first why the letter at this time and how did you get all the signatures together from their various careers and concerns? The long letter that was actually an ad in the New York Times was penned by 
those of us uh, that are national security, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but several of the people on that uh, the 15 that signed it really are long-term uh, experts. Although I was in the military for 29 years, and I was also a U.S. diplomat for 16, so I have a bit of experience with national security. But we pinned it because it was important to let the U.S. administration, the Biden administration, know that there are a lot of people that are very, very concerned about the war uh, in Ukraine, the, the lack of effort by the United States to bring an end to it. Instead, uh, the U.S. is just uh, pumping up the war machine with more and more uh, weapons of war that are going into it, and we're calling for the war to end, to stop the killing on both sides, and come to uh, negotiations on how to finally resolve the ultimate issues between Russia and Ukraine. I mean, the killing can continue forever. We've seen that in, like, the U.S. and Vietnam for over 20 years. Uh, so the history of the U.S. in staying with killing people is part of the tragic legacy of the United States, and and we are saying this has to end. So that's why we put that ad in the New York Times. And it has gotten quite a bit of publicity. A lot of people have read it, and a lot of people agree with it. And, of course, there are plenty that don't. But I feel very, um, very good about what we wrote in it. Well, Biden has had a chance in the past for negotiation, hasn't he? Well, not really. I mean, not on the Ukraine war. He's been solidly on the side of war. I mean, there have been plenty of times when there could have been an intervention. There have been the two Minsk agreements that the U.S. could have been pushing to say go back to the to the table with the Minsk agreements. But the U.S. has not been one of the countries that have been pushing for a ceasefire and for negotiations, unlike Turkey and unlike South Africa, unlike Brazil, unlike China. The U.S. is uh, an outlier on this. Well, not an outlier. I mean, it it represents uh, the NATO countries, really, that uh, still are in it for, for war-making. So it's a real sad state of affairs when we can't get our government to listen to the history of U.S. warfare, whether it's done directly by the U.S. or indirectly, as it is here. So that's why we wrote that uh, long, long, full-page article in, in the uh, New York Times. And how much does the organization that we know as NATO contribute to this? Should NATO even be here at this time? Well, one can argue that after the dissolution of the Soviet Union back in the early 90s, that that was a time that there should have been some thought about uh, doing away with NATO. And in fact, uh, President Gorbachev of, of the new Russian Federation had said to the U.S. and to NATO, now that we're not your enemy and there's no Warsaw Pact countries anymore, why don't we just uh, drop all of these uh, security alliances and just work for peace? Well, that didn't set well because you've got to have an enemy. You've got, in order to keep your weapons industries in business, which for the United States, they're some of our biggest corporations or the war makers. And the first, the Bush one administration nor the Clinton administration at all were 
amenable to uh, lessen the role of NATO, much less just do away with it. Well, it's not just the fact that NATO is there. It's the fact that NATO keeps expanding. Well, that's right. And when you look at NATO and the expansion, when President Bush and his Secretary of State uh, had said to Gorbachev, we will not take one inch of the of the Warsaw Pact countries. You don't have to worry about it. And then Clinton started up the Partnerships for Peace, which was a direct uh, alliance. It wasn't called a NATO alliance at that time, but it started bringing Warsaw Pact countries closer and closer to NATO. And that's one of the things that the Russian Federation still talks about, about that the, the perfidy of the U.S. and NATO countries uh, as they kept nabbing more and more and more of the former Soviet Union countries and putting them into NATO. And the last one, the kind of the red line, was Ukraine. And the Russian Federation had been very clear on this. And, in fact, there there are plenty of uh, memorandum now that are in out in the public where U.S. diplomats had written back from uh, the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. In fact, the current CIA director, Bill Burns, was the U.S. ambassador to Moscow back in the 90s, and uh, he wrote a letter, cable back to Washington, saying, Nyet is Nyet, or no is no. And that had to do with the push at that point for Ukraine to try to become a member of NATO. So it's been one of the red lines that the the Russian Federation has had for decades, and yet the United States and uh, other NATO countries have just kept pushing and pushing. And then with the 2014 coup that the the U.S. helped orchestrate in Kiev, the the push of just everything the the U.S. could seem to do to be in the face of the Russian Federation and its our way or no way, that kind of led us to the tragic decision by the the Russian Federation that they would invade, uh, try to invade all of Ukraine, but were stopped, and continue the attack on Ukraine, which is just devastating. It's horrible, and um, that's why we have to have keep pushing for negotiations, because it has to stop. I mean, for the for the people of Ukraine and for the people of Russia, this has to stop. And that's the truth, isn't it, that there's so many people, it's not just the civilians on the ground that are dying, it's the soldiers from both countries. And you've got to think about all those mercenaries that are there from both sides fighting this war. It's not just a war between Ukraine and Russia. There's so many mercenaries involved. Well, that's right, and the U.S. has had its own military in Ukraine since 2014. The U.S. has had special forces trainers that have been training uh, Ukrainian soldiers to fight in the Donbass, to do the artillery shelling of the Donbass region. And, and now, you know, when after the Russian uh, attack on Ukraine, then the U.S. supplying weaponry has just... Uh, just keeps exponentially increasing and increasing and increasing with over $100 billion now from the United States alone in military equipment. 
And that $100 billion of military equipment just helps to impoverish the people of America? Well, yeah. I mean, we've got a lot of money, and we waste a lot of it, and it is a waste that is in the U.S. military budget, as far as I'm concerned. And that's I say that as a 29-year veteran of the U.S. Army. I retired as a colonel, and I am fully committed to keep after the reduction of the U.S. military funding. Uh, this year, over $800 billion is going to the U.S. military, and they don't need that much. They, <laughs> the next 10 countries combined don't have as much money as the U.S. is spending uh, on its military. And, of course, all of the stuff that we could get back from the military could go to those social features of better education, better health care, better care for uh, the homeless, better care for the mentally challenged. I mean, there are so many places we could use the money, uh, of course, and but the, the, the budget of the U.S. military is just, outrageous it just keeps getting bigger and bigger i mean this the military didn't even ask in its budget for as much money as the congress gave them (laughs) and of course the weapons manufacturers are sitting back laughing oh they are and this uh the, the use of all of this ammunition all the rockets all the missiles uh it is depleting the u.s stockpile which makes the weapons manufacturers uh laugh with glee because they need for that stuff to be used up so that they can make more of it and make more money for it. And the aircraft that now may be going there, the F-16s that other countries are furnishing and the U.S. will furnish uh, the training for them, uh, all of those big dollar value items that the manufacturers now have proprietary rights on all of the Oh, intellectual property of how you build these things. And so the U.S. taxpayer pays for it, but the companies get to keep all the proprietary rights and the U.S. government doesn't have them anymore. So when we have to buy spare parts for all of these aircraft, uh, we have to go back to the manufacturer who always has uh, an inflated price for all of the, the materials that you need for the maintenance of these very expensive aircraft we get taken for a cleaning from the very beginning from the purchase of them all through the the life cycle of them and meanwhile war games practiced in the northern pacific now you're in hawaii how does hawaii get mixed up in all of this well hawaii is the headquarters of the u.s military's indo-pacific command the military command for the United States that covers everything from the west coast of the United States uh, all the way to India. And so all of the military planning, all the military exercises, the war games that the U.S. participates in, which is something like 500 a year, there are little exercises going on all the time and big exercises, for example, up in uh, South Korea right now, right along the DMZ, is one of the largest uh, live fire exercises that the U.S. and the South Koreans have had in the last seven or eight years. And then in Australia in July will be the Talisman Sabre. Well, there will be over 30,000 uh, Australian and U.S. military that will be doing primarily land operations, but there will be an air component and a naval component of it.
these exercises are very, very prolific. One exercise series called Pathways, where the U.S. military has an exercise with virtually every country in the region, with the exception of China and North Korea. And how much of the landmass of Hawaii is actually occupied by the United States for their bases? And where are the peace groups in Hawaii? Are they there? Oh, yes, we do have peace groups. I am on the board of Hawaii Peace and Justice. We have peace groups on each one of the islands. At the universities, we have decolonization groups that that have formed, usually as a part of ethnic studies and Hawaiian studies, because as you rightfully mentioned, so much of the Hawaiian islands are taken over by U.S. military bases. Here on Oahu, where I live, where Honolulu, the capital is, there are six major big military bases. Each one of the military services has a large base, Pearl Harbor, the naval base being uh, the largest probably, and then Hickam Air Force Base, which is co-located with the international airport. Then you have Schofield Barracks, which is the 25th Infantry Army Division. Then you have Kaneohe Marine Base, which is on the other side of the island, with the new expeditionary forces. Then we have the largest Coast Guard base in the Pacific. So we have a large number of training areas, of the largest training area in in the Pacific uh, is uh, on the big island of Hawaii. It's called Puakaloa, and that's used as a bombing range and a live fire range. Uh, militaries from other countries use it. Sometimes they fly their bombers over uh, and bomb Hawaii Island and then turn around and go home, uh, as do aircraft from the continental United States. We have also the Pacific Missile Test Range, which is one end of the large missile ICBM test range that starts in Vandenberg, California, on the west coast of the U.S., and then we have on Kauai this uh, missile range that can track uh, all of the rockets, missiles that are flying over and then heading toward the Marshall Islands and Kwajalein, and that's the end of the missile test range. So, you know, when the United States starts harping on North Korea about, well, you're testing missiles, the U.S. <laughs> continues to test missiles every single month, and it's not just around, as North Korea tests them right around the North Korea area. We, the United States, send them two-thirds of the way across the Pacific Ocean to land near the Marshall Islands. How do these tests and these bases in Hawaii impact on the indigenous peoples? Well, the indigenous peoples' lands have been taken by the U.S. military. Uh, That's one of the campaigns that uh, Hawaiian, uh, Native Hawaiian groups have, as well as our Hawaii Peace and Justice groups, the Sierra Club, other, other groups have. It's called Land Back, and it's to return lands back to Native Hawaiians who have been priced out of the housing market in, in Hawaii because of the influx of all the colonial settlers, and including myself. But uh, the Native Hawaiian population uh, has a very difficult time. They have, uh, thank goodness, the renovation or the rejuvenation of the Hawaiian languages there, the Hawaiian culture. 
So, you know, there's a strong sense of identity now. And the next step is to try to reclaim uh, lands that were given away, essentially, to the U.S. military uh, or were taken by eminent domain back in World War II. Uh, we have some 29,000 acres of land that are going to be come up, come up for renewal in 2029. These 29,000 acres have been with the U.S. military for 65 years. And the U.S. military convinced the state of Hawaii to let them lease those lands for one dollar. One dollar for 29,000 acres for 65 years. And that kind of epitomizes how Hawaii has been taken advantage of by the U.S. government. One of the big campaigns we have going now is to convince the state of, of Hawaii to finally stand up and act like a sovereign state and say to the U.S. military, you have way too much land already and we're not going to release this land to you. That's one of the struggles that we have right now because uh, the state of Hawaii does not hold accountable the U.S. military in the ways that it should. And we saw that from in the last two years where the jet fuel tanks, the Red Hill jet fuel tanks that were built in World War II, uh, they were built inside a volcanic mountain underground, and it turned out that they were these massive tanks that each one held 12.5 million gallons of fuel for ships and for aircraft, these tanks were only 100 feet above the aquifer, the drinking water of Hawaii. And for the 80 years these things have been in existence, they've been leaking. And there have been big leaks and smaller leaks. And then in November of 2021 was a 19,000-gallon leak that went directly into the drinking aquifer and uh, contaminating the drinking water of 93,000 people. Those people have had toxic poisoning from the lack of maintenance on these tanks that allowed these continual spills to come forth. So citizen activism um, and our various groups have formed uh, all sorts of coalitions and have put huge pressure on the state of Hawaii, on our state officials, our congressional officials to finally stand up to the to the military, to the Navy, to say, you have to shut these very dangerous things down. And because, you know, people were getting sick and almost dying, uh, that got the publicity that actually we needed in order to really put pressure. And finally, the Secretary of uh, Defense uh, has said that, yes, they will be closed down. And now we have a big task force here uh, that is slowly working on defueling, taking the fuel out of 14 tanks that now have fuel in them. A, a total of 104 million gallons of fuel are in these tanks. And I'm sad to say for you all in Australia, probably 60 million gallons of those, of, of the fuel we have here, may be coming to the new fuel storage farm that the U.S. has built uh, near Darwin Harbor. Can you explain a little bit more about that? The U.S. is now going to uh, be spreading out the fuel that had been consolidated in these underground tanks here in Hawaii. They're going to be spreading out the fuel in various storage facilities throughout the Western Pacific. About a year and a half ago, 
shortly after this uh, uh, big spill happened, apparently a contract was let uh, in Darwin for the capacity for 60 million gallons of uh, U.S. military fuel to be stored uh, near uh, one of the arms of Darwin Harbor. And what is so interesting about it is that apparently a Chinese uh, harbor group or a group that knows how to run harbors has gotten a lease on that area of Darwin Harbor. Now you have all of these, you know, the U.S. considers China as its enemy and is trying to convince Australia that China is your enemy too, even though it, like the United States, has China as its number one trading partner. The U.S. built this storage facility, and my understanding is it's in the final days of completion right now, and it's right on the harbor that a Chinese company has the the leasing rights on and uh, the operational rights, and as I guess they could close up the harbor whenever they felt it was necessary for whatever reason. This may be a very interesting time for you all in Australia, uh, as the U.S. may be putting more pressure on your government for a variety of military things, which uh, we know is uh, pretty strong pressure right now with the AUKUS agreement that the U.K., the U.S., and Australia made uh, last year uh, on the issue of nuclear submarines. And, of course, you'd be aware that we now have U.S. soldiers permanently stationed in northern Australia. Yes, indeed. The rotation of uh, the U.S. Marines now is on a permanent basis, it seems, that uh, there's, there will always be a presence of uh, U.S. Marines in the Darwin area. Um, my apologies. We seem to be uh, having more and more U.S. military uh, coming out to the Western Pacific. Okinawa is another one that still is uh, overwhelmed with U.S. military, although some of the Marines from Okinawa have uh, been moved to the U.S. territory of Guam, uh, overloading Guam. And then the temporary duty of a lot of U.S. soldiers in South Korea to participate in the numerous uh, military war games that are there. One of the, the military exercises that was this month had a name on it, which is, you know, it, no wonder the North Koreans have every right to challenge what the U.S. is doing. A couple of years ago, one of the war maneuvers was called decapitation, you know, like decapitating the North Korean government. This one is called annihilation firing. You know, it's, um, uh, it just never ceases to amaze me how in everyone's face the U.S. military can be. Is Hawaii on the U.N. decolonization list? As far as I know, it is not. But that doesn't mean that there isn't efforts by Hawaiian sovereignty groups to get it on the list. I believe Guam is on it and Northern Marianas may be, but Hawaii, to my knowledge, is not on it. Just finally, can I ask you about Palestine? We've just had the 75th, or the commemoration of the 75th Nakba, and of course Nakba continues to this day. Indeed it does, and the brutal Israeli government treatment of Palestinians in the West Bank, uh, in Jerusalem, and in Gaza is just, uh, they're really war crimes. 
I mean, it is blatant murders, exegetical killings, the numbers of young kids that have been killed and have been beaten up and imprisoned in the West Bank, the settlers that continue to throw Palestinians out of their houses, the Israeli government demolition of houses and of schools. and of, Then you, you think about the bombings that go on in Gaza. It's just so heartbreaking to see that the Israeli government is even, you know, it, it seems like with every election it keeps getting further to the right and more blatantly racist. It just is not ending. And the United States has pitiful responses to it. You know, the U.S. could be the one country that really tells them, well, we give them $3 billion a year that they don't need, um, but the influence that the U.S. should have. But the forces within the United States that are big donors to our politicians and who corrupt all of them with the thought that Israel can do no wrong and they put blinders on to what the Israeli government is doing to Palestinians is so heartbreaking. And that's why I'm still part of what's called the Gaza Freedom Flotilla where we sailed boats down to Gaza. The people in Gaza know that we haven't forgotten them. And as a part of the sailing, we go to different ports all throughout northern Europe and then the Mediterranean to work with Palestinian solidarity groups to um, encourage the groups to continue their efforts to educate their communities about what what's going on. So we continue to do that. And then, of course, there are, pl- there are lots of organizations that do a lot of work both in Gaza and the West Bank to help Palestinians that are really under great, great stress right now. Well, I thank you for all your work, Anne. Well, Jan, it's a real pleasure to talk with you again, and thank you all for uh, all your work in Australia. And we just have to keep going, challenging all of these issues. We do. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. And our monthly session with Bob Phelps, the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network. And what a good way to start. Bob, you've had a win. Yes, well, we have a little win. A uh, seed company, Grasslands Technology, had applied to field trial a more nutritious perennial ryegrass. It ended up that it withdrew its application I don't think the Office of Gene Technology Regulator actually rejects anything. It just counsels them if they're not going to get a licence to withdraw. We argued to the regulator that since perennial ryegrass, as well as being good for pastures and lawns, is a terrible invasive weed. We reminded them, of course, that uh, Australian weed management already costs $5 billion a year. Uh, mostly for toxic weed killers and for uh, spraying. On this occasion, we've had a a small victory. The field trials will not go ahead. 
and uh, hopefully that will be the end of the ryegrass. They claimed it was going to be more nutritious for animals, so it would have been uh, grown on farms presumably and we would have had cattle as well as native animals uh, eating it and uh, spreading its pollen and seed around the landscape, particularly into natural environments. And because it's so invasive and so successful as plant out on the on the natural landscapes, uh, it is weedy, uh, it is a problem. It would have just perpetuated the difficulties of managing that, uh, more spraying with more toxic chemicals. I think on this occasion we we did win, at least that's how it looks for the time being. It's worth noting that the ryegrass had also been field trialled in New Zealand and in North America. Those trials were unsuccessful, so hopefully they would have been unsuccessful here as well. But for the moment, we won't know because the regulator was not agreeable to the application. And uh, as a result, Grasslands have uh, withdrawn their request for the field trialling of this perennial ryegrass. And where does it come from in the first place? That's a very good question, which I don't know the answer to offhand. It's not native to Australia, of course, and that's the reason that as a weed, it is so problematic. We have so many plants and animals in Australia that have come from overseas and become invasive that uh, we really have made a shambles of the Australian environment. We see lots of native plants and animals going either endangered or extinct as a result of these invasions. The current government at least has lifted its game on biosecurity, so we're a bit more vigilant at the border, but um, there are still major problems with everything you can imagine arriving from somewhere else in the world uh, on airplanes and ships, then establishing itself here and becoming a real problem. I'd say the ants in North Queensland, for instance, and the varroa mite, which is now established in some bee hives, in, particularly around Newcastle, it seems to have come through the port of Newcastle, while being an impost on uh, on growers and agriculture, uh, it also, of course, impacts the whole community that uh, our uh, natural environment and ecosystems are collapsing and that uh, our biodiversity on which we depend uh, is disappearing as well. It's hard to say exactly what we're going to do about it, but at the moment governments are just tinkering around the edges and still promoting land clearing the expansion of agriculture. Uh, we've just, for instance, in the last couple of weeks, been alerted to the uh, intention of the Northern Territory government to clear an additional 100,000 hectares for genetically manipulated cotton and other crops on what has till now been grazing land. The local environmental organisations are up in arms and the Indigenous community is also uh, working hard to stop it but the environmental destruction that will result uh, is just totally unacceptable. It will be another five-year campaign probably to head off the worst of a government that is uh, quite indifferent to the environment with the Beetaloo Basin and various other projects uh, now being organised and approved as well. Gas fracking right across Northern Territory is a huge problem and rejected by uh, First Nations people as well as uh, uranium dumping and a whole raft of other really idiotic intrusions that uh, ought to be rejected. It doesn't seem to matter to governments in Australia how much local opposition and 
and people opposition is to these proposals, they just go off on their high horse and off you go. Yes, well, I think as a a nation that uh, exports most of what it produces, having not uh, value added to the uh, commodities, for instance, that are produced in agriculture, all the cotton, virtually all the canola, wheat and various other crops are exported. And so trade is the... uh, is the mantra. Trade is the thing that they're concerned about. When you start to talk about what's happening locally, uh, they suddenly become blind, deaf and dumb, trying to get some rise out of governments in the face of uh, the mantra of loss of jobs and a loss of export income and so on and so on. It's really incomprehensible, but judiciously ignore the problems that we have in Australia. Like, for instance, food insecurity. There's a a House of Reps inquiry going on at the moment into food security in Australia, and no one in the hearings that they've had so far has even mentioned hunger, malnutrition or starvation, and yet we know that 2 million Australians are chronically food insecure and having trouble putting um, meals on their tables. Some families uh, find that they have to go without a meal for a whole day each week. That's really just unacceptable in a country that's as rich as this. You know, we've got 5% of the world's land area, 0.3% of the population, and yet we can't feed our own citizens the adequate diet to which they're entitled. Everyone has the right to food, and yet this government inquiry is simply not talking about it. It's listening to all the people who are saying trade, 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 uh, more production, uh, more exports. You know, the the National Farmers Federation, for instance, has a mantra of reaching $100 billion of production by 2030, most of which will be exported. It's the same as mining. You know, mining is raping and pillaging the land and taking Australia's non-renewable resources uh, with very little return as well. And it's the same model for agriculture. As a result, we've tried to inject a bit of the concern about Australians themselves into the inquiry. And we've also been, of course, rejecting the industry view that uh, genetically manipulated organisms, uh, plants and animals and microorganisms will be needed to feed the world. The GM canola, cotton and safflower that are already approved in Australia are only 2% of production. Most of them are exported as well. It's the Department of Trade that rules the roost, not the Department of Environment. It leaves Australians really in a very difficult situation, a hungry and disadvantaged situation. We need a more equitable society that guarantees that people are going to be fed. And I'd be encouraging anybody out there who has particularly had personal experience of uh, being hungry or malnourished in their lives go online to the uh, food security inquiry of the federal government, easy to find on Google, to have your say. Uh, only take a short letter or a note to the parliamentarians who are running the committee, and uh, I think that could be influential. And, of course, the federal government haven't had an opportunity with the recent budget to increase the money that people on benefits get would enable them to have more food on the table. Oh, utterly. And yet they're going to spend $368 billion or some much larger sum than that on eight miserable 
dangerous nuclear submarines and we are going to get to store the high-level waste afterwards forever. This, this kind of brain-dead thinking and uh, idiocy, you, you can't make out what's happening. I mean, it was sort of a thought bubble of Morrison's originally, and now the Labor Party has taken it up as well with our mates in the UK and the USA who are going to jump on this gravy train and get most of that taxpayer money from Australians. When we've got education, health, food, housing, we've got problems galore. Where would $368 billion go towards fixing some of those problems? Instead, the government sets aside $10 billion in some future fund, which didn't make any money from its investments last year. And they're talking about capping it at $500 million a year if the income is there. That would probably buy about a 1,000 housing units. We need to be talking about tens of thousands of uh, new houses for the homeless who are over 100,000 people every night homeless in Australia. Our priorities as a community and government and a nation are just topsy-turvy. It's just incredible. And, of course, just harking back to this claim at the House of Reps inquiry that genetic engineering is needed to feed the world means that they're going to dump a whole lot more money into research and development of gene technologies when the last 30 years have produced no results. They're going to keep doing the same, simply wasting money on a dead-end venture when we should be getting on to organic regenerative agriculture, making a commitment to feed this nation well. That should be our number one priority, not the export of bulk commodities. It's unbelievable, really, that so many politicians are and, and bureaucrats as well, I should say, are simply asleep. They're not even at the wheel. Bob, just to finish off, and of course we don't need a GM variety of bananas either. There is an application now before the Office of Gene Technology Regulator and also Food Standards Australia New Zealand wanting to allow humans to eat those bananas. They're proposed for particularly the Northern Territory where there is a problem with the fungal disease um, Fusarium wilt, which is also called Panama disease. But the proponents of this new innovation, which will be up for public discussion probably about August, the new variety of Cavendish banana, which is the main traded commercial banana in the world. The Queensland University of Technology claims to have um, created a genetically manipulated Cavendish, which resists the disease. Uh, but they're just keeping it in reserve in case we have a major problem. Well, fusarium wilt is already a problem in banana plantations, and I think it's the plantation that's the problem. You you grow monocultures of a crop plant all together in one place without any biodiversity, and you're inevitably going to have disease problems. It just attracts the disease and makes it less manageable. The answer is to genetically manipulate the bananas with a gene from one of the somewhat something like 300 other varieties of bananas which are grown around Oceania and Southeast Asia. The researchers at uh, Queensland University uh, took a gene from one of those bananas which naturally resists the fusarium wilt and uh, put it into the Cavendish. And, of course, they're being praised and lauded to the sky 
for great work which has uh, been going on for the last 20 years at the university and now this is the thin edge of the wedge. They'll get commercial approval, they'll say it's a backup but we can see very quickly that it'll be rolled out. One of the saving graces of course is that bananas will have to be labelled as genetically engineered or genetically manipulated or some such. It'll be over then to shoppers to decide whether or not uh, they want to uh, feed their families a genetically engineered banana or not. High times in the food supply. This isn't the first time, is it, that they've been mucking around with bananas? Wasn't there a story a number of years ago about bananas in Africa? The same group of researchers in Queensland were, yes, counting bananas that were going to be biofortified with vitamin A, similar to the so-called golden rice which they've been working on also for the last 30 years. This is adding vitamin A so that in some communities where people are basically dependent on a on a particular staple like banana or cassava or rice, they do tend to have deficiencies of vitamin A, but also many other micronutrients. So the idea of these boffins is we put vitamin A in there, we're going to solve this problem. Nothing could be further from the truth because this hidden malnutrition has got many faces, vitamins, minerals and other micronutrients are missing across the board from those staple crops. What needs to happen is that those communities in Africa and Asia in particular, but also South America and other parts of the world that have got this problem of micronutrient deficiency need to be enabled to have a balanced diet For instance, if they have access to and can eat green leafy vegetables, they'll get all the vitamin A and micronutrients that they could possibly need to be healthy and well, particularly the children. This is much more rational, probably doable as well, than genetically engineered rice or bananas or other staple crops that are causing people to have hidden hunger, malnutrition, micronutrient deficiencies that are not going to be fixed by simply putting one vitamin A into uh, into their staple and leaving them stranded instead of ensuring that these communities can have a good balanced diet of fruit, vegetables and particularly green leafy vegetables which are loaded with the things that they need. Thank you Bob and we'll talk again in a month's time. That'll be terrific. And Bob Phelps is the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network. 3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Articles published on pearls and irritations are regularly discussed on Tuesday Hometown, but today we look behind the words to the ideas and the success of pearls. And to do that, I spoke with one of the many contributors, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees. First, Stuart, the person responsible for pearls and irritations, 
John Manager. Did you know him or of him before you became a contributor? Well, I knew we'd been chief of staff to Malcolm Fraser. I knew he was directly concerned with the Hawke governments, chairman of Qantas for about six years. When I met him, I can't remember what the first time was. I thought, God, this <laughs> this guy's so humble. He's achieved so much, but he's so humble. That's that's about, in a nutshell, my first awareness and impressions. When did you first become aware of pearls? I think it was about four or five years ago, when soon after it started, Joe Camilleri in, in Melbourne said, "You should you should have a look at that. You should write send some of your stuff to John Menadue." It did coincide, I think, a bit with the sudden disappearance of New Matilda because New Matilda didn't publish as much as Pearls does because it it only came out sort of once or twice a week, New Matilda did, whereas John's got this amazing production system of very good articles every, every morning. So you weren't approached, you made the move. Yeah, correct. I mean, since then, John would ring me up and say, can you think about the war in Yemen or other topics? I can't remember what I would have first proposed. Probably something about Palestine that I would have sent to him. I mean, I realized that you needed to write 800 words, 800, no more than 1,000, and write it, make it as clear as a bell and easy to read. Mind you, not everybody, not everybody who writes for them follows those principles. So what do you believe he wanted to achieve with this journal? I think that um, two things, really. First of all, the mainstream press, for the most part, tells us nothing except that which uh, they want us to know, what the establishment proposes. A large part of the mainstream press is Murdoch owned or influenced. So it was an alternative alternative to that. Secondly, it had to be radical in the sense of being hearing alternative voices on a whole range of issues. That um, if freedom of the press and freedom of speech meant anything, then you should be able to write with the frankness that occurs in pearls and irritations and doesn't, doesn't occur you know, in many other places. What do you believe it has achieved, though, in those four or five years? Well, that's difficult to know. I mean, it's obvious that the readership has increased. I mean, it's obviously, I think it's something well over 10,000 every morning. It's difficult to, of course, I mean, I think there are eight or nine articles this morning. I would only read maybe one or, one or two. Whether it affects Anybody in government, I have no idea. For example, a whole, there must have been 50 or 60 articles suggesting that Alcus, the purchase of nuclear submarines, is not only expensive but, but absurd. And they've been well argued. But that doesn't seem to have had any dent, made any dent in the consciousness of Miles, Penny Wong and, and the Prime Minister. It's a good question, yours. I never know what what is achieved by advocates of change like myself. And the title, Pearls and Irritations. 
What does that well, mean? Well, it, <laughs> I think it means that it's, it, John's wife is that she's the pearl and John <laughs> nagging away at what democracy should like is the irritation. She's the pearl. That's the inside info that John's wife is the pearl and John's ability to, to say, you know, there has to be an alternative to the, to the conventional messages, to irritating for the establishment. That's the irritations part. So it's not just John and his wife putting all this together. There's others behind the oh, scenes, aren't there? Well, there's the editor. The editor is, is, is first rate. Aaron Martin, I think it is. It's John's, I wouldn't say it was John's journal, but uh, I mean, there's a whole range of, there's half a dozen people that he obviously relies on more than most. I've no idea how, whether, you know, what range of articles are actually rejected, either because they don't say anything or because they're badly written or because they make claims that can't be, can't be substantiated. I've no idea. He publishes a lot. In my judgment, probably too much. Cautionary note from me. In what sense? I'm pretty conscientious about reading, and I read stuff early, very early in the morning. But um, you know, I'm faced with eight eight articles this morning. I've got to make a choice, and I can barely. This, you know, if I miss one, then the next morning I think, well, I I probably have a look at it then. But by the next morning, I'm confronted with another, with another spate. In other words, I've just got a feeling somehow that if it was every other day, it might have more impact. But surely people used to read the newspapers from page to page every day? Yes, yes and no. The Saturday paper comes out only once a week. In other words, the journals that seem to concentrate on detailed investigation... They are not coming out every every day. You get a, two paragraphs about a car crash in the western suburbs of Sydney or a stabbing somewhere. But serious analysis, you don't... Well, I don't think you get that every day. What do you think about the categories that he's chosen for the articles? Look, I, I think that's okay. I mean, the range of the number of people who appear whom I've never heard of rather suggests that the the categories are widening all the time. I mean, there's been, in the past year, there's probably been a major focus on relations with China and the absurdity of AUKUS. There's some, I mean, somebody like the former editor of the Canberra Times, Jack Waterford, gets a go just about every week on contemporary politics. But I, I, I think his categories are fine. I mean, because they're pretty flexible. I mean, if you say... Human rights, I don't know whether he classifies, lists human rights, but if you were to say human rights, that would keep me going for the rest of my days. Well, just as a personal reflection on it, what has it meant for you to have this journal each day, even though you feel as though it could be every second day? Yeah, look, I think it's personally very, very satisfying, very important. I mean, I read stuff about Palestine that I wouldn't otherwise know, it gives me a kick to let off steam on certain issues. For example, I'm so appalled at the the coverage of the um, of the Price Waterhouse Cooper controversy that yesterday morning in a cafe in Canberra, the coffee was so bad 
that, uh, that I got rid of my frustration by immediately writing an article about the deceit of the consultancy companies. I felt confident that um, pearls and irritations would want it. So that's very reassuring and very encouraging for, for me to not, because if I was to submit the same article to the Sydney Morning Herald, I might take two weeks of talking to them as to whether they, want, they were interested. Whereas there's a kind of spontaneity and um, um, inclusiveness about uh, John, about pearls and irritations. And like when you get up in the morning and something incenses you or something upsets you, you feel as though that could go into pearls and irritations today. Yes, you know, yep, that's good. You know there's an outlet. Could write for Arena or a few other things, but, um, you know, loyalty is pretty strong with me, so I probably stick with pearls and irritations because I noticed that new Matilda has been has been resurrected, but you know my loyalty is to nowadays has been to pearls and irritations. Can I just finish Stuart saying something about Price Waterhouse? Isn't this just the end of the end game of privatisation and the, the sacking of the public servants? Sure, sure. Partly because the the movement of con- management consultants, the kind of cancer of management consultancy has been growing for 30 years or more or more. Largely, I mean, if I had to say where it started, I'd say it was to do with the absurd reverence for the Master of Business Administration degree, MBA, which, when you think about it, actually doesn't mean Master of Business Administration. It means every um, downtown area of every big city in every country, there are these massive high-rise buildings with the logos of these companies on them. Nobody asks, who works in there? What particular expertise do they have? It's almost as though the management consultants are the witch doctors of the 21st century. You just have to believe, but you're not allowed to know whether they, what their particular medicine is well where does it go from here well it's a good question i mean it's look it's partly because of the um and i think this was a hint in your question it's partly because of the worship of something called private enterprise and it's disdain for something called public service so that choices are being made about whether to support private enterprise or public service. If you support private enterprise, then you, uh, you make sure that Scott Morrison gives over $20 billion in the last year of his government to management consultants. But at the other end of the scale, you don't you get rid of as many public servants as possible. So that's what's happened. So you've got this peculiar mix of the, the absurd influence of the MBA degree I've got it wrong. I should have said it actually means moral bankruptcy assured, right? And now you can see that in the case of um, PricewaterhouseCooper that that's um, proven. But my argument is that don't let's be preoccupied with PwC. What about all the other companies? Do we really think that they're all squeaky clean? The answer is no. And, um, and then... Shadow Finance Minister on the radio a couple of days ago talking about the importance of what was it privacy and 
privacy and secrecy. Well, she said that meant that the, the people who get the contract have to respect the information in relation to the government or whoever gave them the, com the, 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 the money. In other words, they were entitled to be, they should be private and secret about that. But in fact, they've used privacy and secrecy to, in this case, to do what they want, to do what they like. The silly old public are not supposed to know. Well, just to finish, Stuart, I'll look forward to your next contribution to Pearls and Irritations. Yeah, well, I, I think it, they'll publish it. I know it's going to come out. The last thing I mentioned in the article is that in 20 years ago, Gordon Rodley, a wonderful scientist, and I did, wrote a book about this. It was called The Human Costs of Managerialism, right? But the subtitle was Advocating the Recovery of Humanity. Now, the concept of humanity is completely absent from all these considerations. It's all about, the, it's all about cost effectiveness. It has nothing to do with humanity. And many thanks to Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, one of the contributors to Pearls and Irritations. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.